Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing One of the big news items recently is that the 2017 Nobel Prize for Peace is awarded to ICANN, an organization which has brought energies from hundreds of groups from all over the world together to produce a UN-approved treaty. This is a big breakthrough, and today's Spirit in Action guest, Timon Milne-Wallace, can tell us why. Tim's new book is Disarming the Nuclear Argument, the Truth About Nuclear Weapons, and he has a lifetime of experience working for peace from many angles, as a lecturer in peace studies and in the field with Peace Brigades International, Nonviolent Peace Force, International Alert, Peace Workers UK, and recently with Peace and Disarmament for Quaker Peace and Social Witness in the UK. It is my good fortune that Rita Webb, a previous Spirit in Action guest who served with Nonviolent Peace Force in Sri Lanka, organized a visit for Tim to Eau Claire's Unitarian Universalist Congregation and to our university. So Tim and Wallace joins us today in person right here in Eau Claire. Tim, thanks so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you. You're in Massachusetts now. You lived in the UK for an extended period? Yes, I was brought up in Scotland when I was younger, and then I gradually moved further south. I was in Yorkshire to do peace studies in Bradford in Yorkshire. Then I lived outside a nuclear missile base in Cambridgeshire, and then I ended up in London, where I was for most of the last 25 or 30 years. But then I was working abroad in Sri Lanka and Philippines, and I was three years in Brussels, and I was also in Minneapolis for a couple of years. And has your entire professional life as an adult been in varieties of piecework? Yep, yep. I mean, I've I've started out as a music teacher, and I've done a few other part-time jobs when I've been in between things, but basically all my work has been in the peace field. And don't soft-sell yourself too much. I mean, there is the musical part of it. You, are, you do have a website, boldsongs.com, with songs that you've put together. Could you say just a little bit about where music fits in your continuing context of your life? Well, I, I love music, and, it's, and it is something that empowers me and is good for just grounding myself and not being too serious about the things that we're up against. But I did reach a point in my 20s, I mean, I was a very serious musician, and I reached a point where I had to choose between really dropping everything else that I was interested in and just doing music, or dropping the music, and I, and I dropped the music, because there was too many other things to do. So why did you change your tune to this nuclear activism, your peace activism? Well, I started out really more concerned about environmental issues. This was back in the 70s. I went to College of the Atlantic. I don't know if people have heard of it. It's in Bar Harbor, Maine. Got a degree in human ecology and became very active with various environmental groups at that time, including Ralph Nader, who was organizing this whole campaign against nuclear power stations. 
And from there, I mean, I, I had my peace activism in the background as a Quaker, and I was drafted into the Vietnam War, and I became a conscientious objector. So, I mean, I had that, but I was more focused on the nuclear power issue for quite a while until I... Well, it was actually Helen Caldicott, who I understand spoke in Eau Claire quite recently. She gave a talk, I think it was in Boston, and just said, well, you know, never mind nuclear power stations. You know, the real threat to the whole world is out there with the arms race developing. This was, you know, the beginning of the 1980s. And so I put all my energy into that, and I ended up living at a peace camp in England and just went on from there, basically. So when you were in New England, the Seabrook is what I recall, the, the yep. big movement. Yep, I was there. there. Yep. <laughs> you were there for that. And in England, the big one, I, I, I think of a woman's encampment about nuclear. Yeah, that was Greenham Common. That was a women's camp. I actually heard about that when I was a student at Aberdeen University. And I hitchhiked for three days to get to Greenham Common. Uh, but this was before mobile phones and internet and so on. So parts of the details hadn't made it all the way to Aberdeen. So the fact that it was only for women didn't reach Aberdeen. So when I got there, they said, you know, this is only for women and you've got to go somewhere else. So I ended up at another camp called Molesworth, where I was involved for nearly seven years in the campaign to get rid of the missiles there. Okay, so that's back in the 1980s we're talking about. And just recently, the Nobel Peace Prize was issued to ICANN. That's a group you were involved with along the way. Or are you one of the 400 or so groups associated with ICANN? How, how is your connection with ICANN? Well, I have been part of several of the 468 organizations that make up ICANN. ICANN you know, has a steering group and a core team that work in Geneva, and I'm not part of that, but I am part of the wider ICANN family, and I've been very active, actually on behalf of Quakers in Britain, mainly, in the whole process leading up to the negotiations for this treaty. What is ICANN? So the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which is actually ICANN-W, but they dropped off the W, it's been going for 10 years. It is a coalition of 468 different organizations all around the world in 100 different countries who have all clubbed together to make this treaty possible that's just been approved by the United Nations. So it's a, it's a global campaign. The average age is about 25. It's very young, energetic, motivated young people from surprising parts of the world like Latin America and Africa and and all across Asia, and it's great that they got the Nobel Peace Prize. Maybe we better spell out some of this, because I think that, unfortunately, so many people in the U.S., that nuclear arms are off of our mind since the 1990s. You, you have the fall of the Berlin Wall, you have reduction of nuclear stocks. So I think most people think it's gone away. And I was, in fact, very disappointed last night, the number of people showed up. I'm not terribly surprised, because I know that when you say nuclear weapons, people think, that's a non-issue right now. Explain why it's an issue and what the treaty that ICANN helped facilitate is all about. Well, I was also one of the people, in, you know, at the end of the 1980s, you know, when the Berlin Wall came down, you know, we all thought it was over, you know, we're, we, we won, you know, we got rid of the nuclear weapons, they're going to get rid of them sooner or later. And I went on to other peace issues. And in fact, you know, my whole career has been really in other areas of peace work. 
But about three years ago, I was hired by Quakers in Britain to work on peace issues that Quakers in Britain were concerned about, and nuclear weapons was one of them. So I, I was on my agenda. I, I went to some meetings. I talked to people, and I, and I was sort of astounded to realize that the situation hadn't been resolved and that actually the situation is far more dangerous than it was even in the 1980s, and that all the things that have happened in those intervening years have been to consolidate the sort of permanent nature of nuclear weapons in the in the certain countries like the United States and also the UK. And I was kind of surprised about that and shocked and got very involved in that and trying to help people to really get it back on the agenda, which is what which is what our big challenge is right now, as you say. You know, people are not thinking about this issue right now. But the really exciting, you know, the ICANN campaign is a really positive, exciting development that people need to know about because it's not all doom and gloom. It's actually some really exciting things happening in the world. And the main thing about this treaty is that all these countries, you know, a majority of countries, over 140 countries in the world, got together and said, you know, we've been waiting all these decades for the U.S. and the other nuclear states to get rid of their weapons and, you know, sit down and negotiate as they promised legally. And they haven't been doing that. Instead, they've been building up and developing all these new weapons. And so we're going to do it ourselves. And so it was a unique sort of collaboration between civil society organizations from all across the world, 468 organizations in 100 countries, together with some governments who are willing to stick their necks out and go against, you know, U.S. pressure on this. And, and the Red Cross, which played a big, important role in the whole thing, the International Red Cross Movement. And they, you know, this all came together to come up with a treaty that would make nuclear weapons illegal internationally. So that's what's been done. It was, uh, the, the treaty was adopted in July, on July 7th of this year. It was open for signatures on the 20th of September, and we currently have just over 50 countries signing it, and three have so far ratified it. But it's very likely that at least 146 countries will sign it and ratify it. And I'm hopeful myself that many more will sign it because the pressure is now on. And although, as you say, right now, nuclear weapons are not on the top of everybody's agenda, you know, the danger that we face right at this very moment with the, between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un in North Korea is, is so acute that I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to come much more to people's attention in the, in the coming weeks and months. And the treaty, as well as prohibiting everything to do with nuclear weapons for the countries who sign it, it also becomes part of international customary law. The more countries that sign it and the longer it goes on remaining in the statute books, as it were. So we're hoping that even though countries like the United States have no intention of signing it anytime soon, that the pressure will be on them internationally to change course on nuclear weapons. And of course, we're trying to build a campaign in the U.S. to build pressure on the government from the grassroots up, as well as from these other countries coming at them. Now, people can learn a lot of the background in this by reading Timon Milne Wallace's book, Disarming the Nuclear Argument, The Truth About Nuclear Weapons. I've only started the book, but I just heard you speak at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and my mind was opened to so many facets that I'd been blind to before. I think that a number of our listeners will benefit from hearing why this is so important. We all thought that it was a done, fixed issue. We all thought that nuclear weapons were illegal of some sort or that there is nothing you could do about them, but ICANN is moving forward. First of all, when you say that the treaty was passed at the UN, what does that mean? That means that out of the 200-some nations of the world, they voted and a majority approved? Is that what that means? 
Well, the way any international treaty works is that the countries come together. In this case, they met at the UN, but the Landmines Treaty, for instance, was signed in Ottawa, and other treaties have other ways of being formed. But a treaty is an agreement between those countries who sign it, saying we agree to abide by this new regulation, laws, and so on. So this is a process that's been going on for several years to get to this point where there were votes at the UN General Assembly last year and the year before calling for negotiations. There was a series of conferences that a number of countries went to in different venues to talk about the issue and the dangers and why it's so important now. And all that material you know, was building up to really consolidate a key number of countries that took this forward and said, well, we're going to do this. It was actually Austria who stood up, the foreign minister of Austria stood up at a conference held in in Vienna, 2014, I think, 2015, I think, and said, we pledge to work to fill this legal gap, which still allows countries to claim that nuclear weapons can in any sense be legal. It was called the Austria Pledge, and countries signed on to that until they had more than 100 countries, you know, signed up to this pledge. And then it went to the UN General Assembly. They voted on it. You know, the U.S. and the other allies and, and so on voted against it, but a vast majority of countries voted for it, and so they went ahead with the negotiations. And so the treaty is adopted, so it's, it, it doesn't take a certain number of countries to adopt it. It was, it was voted 122 to 1, but it doesn't really matter the number at this point because it's now a treaty. And so it depends on who signs it, who is bound by it. And that we still have to see because it's early days, got 53 so far, and as I said, there's at least 146 countries that have been part of this process and have said somewhere along the way that they will support this treaty. And that, by the way, includes countries like North Korea. So we'll wait and see whether they actually sign it. But, you know, we expect a large number of countries, you know, that's three quarters of the world, of the world's countries. Once we get up to that kind of level of signatures, then it really has the status of international law and it starts to become this customary international law that really puts pressure even on the United States who, don't, who won't sign it. Historically, people would be advised to look back on what happened with treaties on biological weapons, chemical weapons, the landmines, you already referred to that, Tim. There's a number of steps that have been taken internationally to certify that certain kinds of violence just are never acceptable. Nuclear was the big hole in this. What was that about? Why was there this hole in the legislation, the legal right to use nuclear weapons? Well, you may recall that in 1996, there was a world court decision about nuclear weapons because at that point, there was already this quite widespread groundswell of opposition to this sort of continuing business as usual. I mean, what many people don't know, especially in this country, is that every single year at the UN General Assembly, there are resolutions about nuclear weapons to abolish nuclear weapons, and they pass by massive majorities every single year. This has been going back to the first, the very first resolution of the United Nations General Assembly called on the US, which was the only country to have them at that time, to make sure that these weapons were never used again and they would be eliminated. And every year, ever since then, they've been having these resolutions. So so the international opposition to nuclear weapons has been strong for a long, long time. But the countries that have them, like the United States, have no interest and no intention of getting rid of them. They like having them. You know, they, they're willing to spend unbelievable amounts of money to maintain them. And they think that they give them this status in the world and they're not willing to let go of it. A lot of my book is about trying to dispel these myths about, you know, 
the value of nuclear weapons, not only that you know they don't provide protection to anybody, they don't really deter attacks or anything, but also that they don't actually accord status to countries either. I mean, smaller countries like the UK and France only have these weapons because they think that they're you know that makes them part of the big big guys you know at the UN, but. Supporting the right causes and working on, you know, being a humanitarian champion is a much more of a gives much more status to these countries than having nuclear weapons ever ever will or, and ever did. But there, you know, there's this all these myths about why we have them, and as I said, these countries are not willing to give them up, and so it's taken all this time for the other countries to get the courage to stand up against the United States and Russia and China and so on and say like. We're not waiting any longer for you guys. We're going to do it ourselves. And that's what they finally managed to do. So explain the significance of a treaty versus a resolution. These resolutions have been around forever. And a treaty carries force because? Well, it's a legally binding document. And it's got legally binding articles in it, which, for instance, require countries to be open for verification and monitoring of their nuclear, anything to do with nuclear weapons. And it it states, so for instance, under international law already, it's illegal under the Geneva Conventions, which the U.S. has signed, it's illegal to target civilians. Now, nuclear weapons, unlike landmines or drones or these weapons that we hear about all the time, you know, that are targeting a single terrorist or something, you know, nuclear weapons are only good for destroying whole cities. You know, they're massive, massive weapons. And it's unbelievably, I mean, it's impossible to imagine using a nuclear weapon and not causing massive civilian casualties. And that is illegal under the Geneva Conventions. It's illegal to use a weapon that will cause prolonged and unnecessary suffering. And we know from the radiation effects that are still affecting people from the Hiroshima bomb 70 years ago, we know that the radiation affects future generations. It affects people that weren't even part of the conflict. It doesn't respect boundaries. And so it goes outside of, you know, neutral countries have to be respected under international law as well. But if there's a nuclear war, radiation is going to spill onto neutral countries. All those things make it illegal to use. But the loophole has always been, well, we have them for deterrence, and so we're never going to use them. So we're not breaking the law by having them. But now this treaty, for the first time, makes it legally binding commitment never to possess or even assist another country in possessing nuclear weapons. So the real power of this treaty is that the countries that do sign it are committing themselves to divest from nuclear industries, to refuse cooperation with nuclear countries. So U.S. ships can't land in ports. U.S. planes can't fly over their territory. They can't use their territory for U.S. nuclear exercises. All these things are going to have a huge impact on the U.S., even though it doesn't sign the treaty. So does this mean, for example, Tim, that Switzerland, as a signator, and if they ratify it, that means that their banks would not hold money for nuclear producers, that kind of thing? That's the kind of thing, exactly. And if you think about it, the banks, these banks, big corporations that are involved in nuclear production or submarine production or missiles or whatever. These companies have branches all over the world. The banks have branches everywhere. And my dream is that they're going to need a particular, you know, small part, a screw or something that they can only get from one particular factory in one particular country. And that country signs the treaty and says, you can't have it. And then they're stuck. You know, that's my dream. But even without that, as you say, Switzerland, Saudi Arabia, I mean, a lot of countries are investing in these companies and they will be breaking the law in those countries. And so when it comes to 
a lot of people you know, ask about, well, how do you enforce a treaty like this? And of course, it's impossible at the moment to really force a country to abide by what it says it will do. As we know, you know, Trump just said he will pull out of the Paris Agreement and might pull out of the Iran Agreement. And those were both binding agreements that we're pulling out of. So you can't force a country not to do that. But within a country, you know, part of the treaty is requiring them to pass national legislation and to have sanctions, whether it's fines or whatever it is, on any company or bank or whoever is violating the treaty. So it does mean that Switzerland as a country will be expected to fine banks or, or you know, pose, impose some kind of penalty on them for if they continue to break the treaty. So we're talking here about nuclear weapons, specifically. It's not nuclear power that we're dealing with, although that is the issue that first connected you up with this yes, whole indeed. ball of wax, right? And ICANN, who received the Nobel Peace Prize just recently, they've worked on and got this treaty passed. Your work has been broader than that. You've been working in the area of nonviolence. And your book, Disarming the Nuclear Argument, The Truth About Nuclear Weapons, and again, folks, that's by Timon Milne Wallace. This book gives people the ability to think about it clearly. There's a whole range of arguments. I want to cover a few of them as we go through. But first, as part of the background, you need to explain why the end of the 1980s, the beginning of the 1990s, why we're not done with nuclear weapons. Because as we've all been told, nuclear stockpiles were vastly reduced. The U.S. committed to getting rid of these things. Yeah. Well, there's a very simple explanation for this, which is that there's a very large amount of money involved. And for those of us who oppose nuclear weapons, you know, one of the arguments against these weapons is that they're taking, they're literally killing people now by taking money away from services that are, that are needed to save people's lives and to protect them and to provide for social needs and so on. So people who die from hurricanes because there's not proper infrastructure and they say they can't afford it, you know, that money's going into nuclear weapons instead of going into other things that are needed. But of course, that money is going somewhere. So $1.2 trillion, which are earmarked for nuclear weapons alone in the United States over the next 30 years, which is something like $3 million an hour is being spent on upgrading the weapons we already have, that money is going somewhere. It's going into people's pockets. And so there's a very small number of people who are benefiting from this, you know, who are part of these nuclear corporations, nuclear industries. Obviously, the people who work in those companies are also, you know, they have jobs. But it's really the vested interests that have kept this thing going, despite the end of the Cold War, the end of the whole justification for having them at that time. And they just invented new justifications for them. But didn't the nuclear stocks vastly be reduced? Didn't we get rid of most of the problems? because mutually assured destruction. We were worried there are so many nuclear weapons sitting everywhere that by vastly reducing them, we've gotten rid of that danger, right? <laughs> so it is certainly true that at the end of the Cold War, first Reagan and Gorbachev signed the INF Treaty, got rid of a whole class of nuclear weapons that were based in Europe. Then George Bush Sr. and whoever was the next guy in Russia, in, in the Soviet Union, they started the START agreements, which reduced the stockpiles of nuclear weapons on both sides further. So at the end of the Cold War, we had in the world more than 60,000 nuclear warheads, and we're now down to 15,000. So that means 45,000 or more nuclear weapons have been dismantled, destroyed, and eliminated. However, the reality, if you look at which weapons were taken out of service and which weapons were kept, 
it's kind of disturbing because the most useful weapons, if you like, are the ones they kept, and the most useless ones are the ones they got rid of. These are weapons that were, you know, many of them dating back to the 40s. I've given examples of some of the kinds of weapons. For instance, this Davy Crockett nuclear weapon that was fired from the back of a Jeep, and the distance that the Jeep could travel was short to once it's been fired is shorter than the radius of the nuclear explosion taking place so it's a suicide mission they even had nuclear weapons that you could strap on the back of a person a soldier and take into battle and put it on the ground and run away i mean these were crazy and uh, there were many other kinds of, there were, you know we had nuclear artillery shells in germany thousands of them that could be fired from artillery across, you know, the line, you know, but the, the radiation would come straight back. I mean, they, you know, these are weapons that they got rid of for good reason, and we're very glad they did. But what they've kept are all the most powerful ICBMs, submarine-launched missiles, you know, really powerful stuff, which they have been developing to become more and more accurate, more and more dangerous. So, yeah, the weapons that they got rid of were some of the s- smallest weapons, which were not which were obsolete and unusable, and also some of the largest weapons, which are so big that they can't fit on the top of a missile. You can't send them quickly across the Atlantic or the Pacific. So, you know, they, they kept the ones that they were, that were most usable in terms of their nuclear strategies. And so we've got a much leaner machine, but we've actually got a much more dangerous machine now, which is an arsenal of nuclear weapons on both sides, the U.S. and Russia. They have by far the most weapons. And the weapons that they have are ones that, that can destroy whole cities, but also can destroy the missiles of the other side much more accurately and put the whole thing on a, on a dangerous footing. We're going to talk more with Tim Wallace in just a moment, but I want to let you know that you're listening to Spirit in Action. It's a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web, northernspiritradio.org. With more than 12 years of our programs for free listening and download, there's links to our guests on our site, a lot more information. So you can find disarmingarguments.com, which is Tim Wallace's website for the book, disarmingarguments.com, but there's also a couple other websites you want to find out about them, boldpros.com and boldsongs.com. Those links are on nordenspiritradio.org. There's also a place for you to post comments, and we love to have two-way communication. Our voice becomes stronger when we speak together, so please post a comment when you visit. There's also a place to donate. This is 100% full-time work. Your donations make it possible. Even more important, though, than just supporting the work of Northern Spirit Radio is to support your local community radio stations. It's so important to have a diversity, a a wealth of commentary from all different sides, and your community radio station makes it possible. So please, start by supporting them. Again, Timon Wallace is here. We're not used to the name Timon, I think, in the United States, but there are lots of other Tim Wallaces out there. Timon, T-I-M-M-O-N, Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S, if you want to just do a search via Google, Disarming the Nuclear Argument. He spoke in Eau Claire recently, and I'm grateful to have him here for Spirit in Action. So we've talked a bit about the evolution of the nuclear danger. Some people will still say, we've never really been in danger of this going awry since back in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. When I heard you speak, you said 2010, there was a near miss for us. What was that about? 
Well, there was uh, there have been a number of these incidents where we've come dangerously, dangerously close to the launching of nuclear weapons on both sides. And the most recent one, which I was giving as an example, was a research satellite being fired from Norway, a science launch, and the Norwegian authorities notified the Russian authorities, as they should have, that this was going to be launched and would be heading towards Russia, but it was a science satellite, don't worry about it. And that should have been fine. But, you know, as an example of what can go wrong, the whoever it was that received that message in Russia, for whatever reason, didn't pass it on to the person that was in charge of the radars that, you know, look for things that might be a missile coming at you. And so the radars picked up this satellite heading towards Russia and said, you know, we're being attacked. And it was only after a full alert in Russia that they suddenly realized, well, this is not a nuclear weapon. And it went beyond where they th- up into space. So they didn't, they didn't worry about it. But I mean, you know, we could have had a full scale nuclear war at any of these 13 times when this kind of thing has happened. You know, flock of geese run across the radar and people think it's a nuclear war starting. We've had too many of these scary, scary, you know, near misses. And as many people in the military have said themselves, we've survived so far by luck. And how long is that luck going to last? That's the risk that we're taking every day. There's a lot of arguments that you present, arguments, counter-arguments. I think maybe you were just reasoning out, is this dangerous, is this not? Was there ever a moment when you thought it was maybe okay to have nuclear weapons? <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I did... The subtitle of this book and the title of my first book was about the truth. And it is very, very important to me to try to be open-minded about this. And if the truth is that we have to have these weapons for whatever reason, then it would have been tough for me to swallow. But I mean, I, would have, I wanted to find out, you know, I want to know what the truth is. And uh, as I say in the, in the introduction of the book, you know, when I started this process, I was pretty confident that on balance overall, I could make the case against nuclear weapons. You know, I thought... I really did think that, you know, some of the arguments in favor of them must must make some sense and some of them don't. And the, so it would be about, the book would be about weighing up, you know, well, you know, maybe they do keep us safe, but is that worth the risk that they're posing or, or whatever? And it was a shock to me. I mean, I learned a lot from working on the book. It was a shock to find that, you know, not a single argument stands up. Even the idea that nuclear weapons ended the Second World War and therefore we should, be, we should all rejoice, you know, that at least they perform that function, you know, even that's not really true. And the idea that they prevented the Soviet Union from invading Western Europe or that, they've, or that countries that have nuclear weapons are somehow guaranteed to be safe from attack, I mean, none of these things stand up. They just don't. So why don't they? Why doesn't it work as a deterrent? I saw the map that you displayed and you said, okay, these countries have weapons. These are the nine nations that have them. And these are the hundreds of others that don't have them. And what's the conclusion? The conclusion is that there's no statistical correlation between countries having nuclear weapons and being any safer than countries that don't have nuclear weapons. There's just no correlation. If you take the U.S. as an example, I mean, the U.S. fought the Korean War with the Soviet Union backing North Korea and at one point even China coming in. And they they didn't deter those countries from being part of that war. And they didn't win the war for them. And they obviously didn't win the war in Vietnam. They didn't win any war that the U.S. has fought since the Second World War. Nuclear weapons have played no part in any of those wars. But more scarily, if you look at countries like Israel, which has nuclear weapons and has fought a number of wars since it has, or you look at 
India and Pakistan, which have been fighting wars against each other ever since they became independent, including the most recent war, the Cargill War, which was fought dangerously, dangerously close to a nuclear war between those two countries. They both had nuclear weapons, and they both fought a war with each other. And, you know, the nuclear weapons did not deter the other side or have any effect on the other side. They still fought a war. My assumption in terms of deterrence, and I'm, I'm opposed to nuclear weapons, okay? I'm a Quaker also, and I have this outlook. I think it's morally bankrupt idea to even do that, and violence is not the way. So those are my personal views. I still wrestle with the idea that if I have a nuclear weapon and I'm on the rocks and I'm going to be obliterated anyhow, I'm losing it, I don't care, I might as well just bollocks up the whole thing and just toss the weapons, right? I can imagine Kim Jong-un doing that because, hey, if I'm going out of power, why do I care? I'll drop the bomb. Does that make any sense? And so that as a a deterrent, the fact that he's got nuclear weapons actually may work if we had a leader who, who actually cared about those things. Well, the problem with North Korea is that, I mean, we are in a very, very dangerous situation right now with North Korea and with Trump because we have a U.S. president who who I think doesn't understand the dangers and the risks of starting a nuclear war and has said so, you know. So that not only threatens the possibility of the U.S. using nuclear weapons against North Korea to stop that country from developing any further their nuclear capacity, but it also means that it's creating the exact situation you're describing where if Kim Jong-un has nothing to lose and if he thinks that his his own nuclear weapons are about to be destroyed, he's going to fire them first. That is the logic of the nuclear brinkmanship that we lived with all through the Cold War as well, is that you've got to use them or lose them. These weapons are aimed at each other, and if you don't fire before they get you, then you can't fire back. So that raises the whole risk enormously. But, you know, in terms of countries just firing nuclear weapons, well, you know, we, we had that with the Israeli attack on the Iranian nuclear facility back some time ago, that they launched a preemptive strike to destroy that facility. And while North Korea hasn't fully developed its nuclear capacity, that is the risk that they will be attacked first. I mean, you know, Kim Jong-un is not stupid. I mean, he is developing nuclear weapons that could hit the United States for exactly that reason. He thinks that that will protect him from the U.S. And there is a sort of logic there. But unfortunately, one of the things that I learned working on my book is that one of the insidious things about deterrence is that for us normal people, we think, well, of course... Any normal person would be deterred. You know, no one's going to want to be destroyed. So, you know, if, if, they were, if we're being threatened with total destruction, you know, why would we ever do that? But we are not the people with our fingers on the button. And even if we discount Trump for a moment, the people that are preparing to fight a nuclear war and are continuing to do so are the military who are based in underground bunkers, you know, nuclear-proof bunkers. They think in a different way about how a nuclear war might be fought, and they are not deterred by that threat. They don't care. I mean, even, you know, it's kind of callous to say so, but, I mean, U.S. generals or, you know, British generals or Russian generals or whatever who might give the order or might, you know, carry out the orders for a nuclear attack do not think in terms of, well, you know, maybe New York was going to be destroyed as a result. They're thinking in terms of how am I going to win this war? And, you know, if it's about, you know, well, we destroy their, so many of their weapons, they destroy so many of ours, we're still going to win. You know, that's how they think. 
this came home to me when I started, you know, looking at the First World War and the fact that, um, you know, they sent millions of soldiers to their deaths, knowing that they were going to be mown down by machine gun fire in these battles of the Somme and so on. Millions were killed, and they just kept pouring them in. You know, they just kept sending them there because that is the logic of the kind of military mindset that is about fighting a war. It's about winning, and, you know, you have to take some sacrifices. And that's the kind of logic that we get into. It's just thinking that we're going to be safe because no one will attack us knowing that they're going to have their cities destroyed is, is wishful thinking. There is one case, Tim, that I've thought about where I think there is some kind of a deterrent effect of nuclear weapons. And I think it's probably one you don't talk about in your book. And that is, if only one nation, one source has nuclear weapons and no one else does, you know, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, that kind of thing. If only one source has the nuclear weapons, who's going to attack them? Because if I'm in the U.S., I can drop the bombs over on Russia or China or whomever over in Iran. I can do that and feel relatively safe in the U.S. Is that something we need to fear, that we get rid of nuclear weapons except there's some rogue element that has some bombs? Well... I mean, one of the things about the treaty and about the nature of nuclear weapons is that, yes, if we're going to get rid of these weapons once and for all, which we have to do, we have to do this, how do we ensure that no one cheats and no one develops a weapon or holds on to one and tries to you know, hold the world to ransom in that way that you describe? And that's where a lot of thinking has gone into that. You know, it's not a superfluous question. You know, we've, there's been decades of thought put into this and how to, how to monitor and verify we have the mechanisms in place already to know when someone is developing a nuclear weapon. There is no possibility of a country developing nuclear weapons at this point without the whole world knowing about it. And North Korea is a, is a perfect example of that. We pick up the testing from seismographs, you know, thousands of miles away. And we pick up missile launches from satellites, you know, up in the sky. You know, it's, this, is, this covers the whole globe now, these kind of technologies. But in addition to that... We've got the infrastructure required to build and develop a nuclear weapon is so massive that it's pretty hard to hide even that, you know, in terms of the amount of money pouring in, the certain specific types of machinery and equipment that are needed, which is why they were suspicious of Saddam Hussein, because he was acquiring some of that equipment, the same with Iran. So, you know, they already knew countries that were trying to do this. And if all countries had come to agreement then it will be very, very easy to know if somebody's trying to hide something. And it will be very, very easy for the rest of the world to say, you know, you stop that or we're going to all gang up on you and make sure you stop it. Now, that is the whole theory behind the United Nations and the Security Council. That's how it's set up to do that very thing. But, of course, that depends on the United States and the other nuclear powers coming in with this because without them, we don't have that capacity. So the U.S. is critical in this, and we have to get the U.S. behind it. But once we have a world without nuclear weapons, the incentive for developing one is going to be extremely reduced. The ability to produce one is going to be hampered, and the ability to stop somebody who tries is going to be greatly strengthened. 
And folks, again, Timon Wallace is author of Disarming the Nuclear Argument, The Truth About Nuclear Weapons. His website is disarmingarguments.com. Now, there's a whole lot of arguments you can, there's some 20 different arguments that you address in the book, Tim, and people will benefit from reading them. They're going to understand a lot more about how the world works and why this is not just pie in the sky. This is not just idealism. This isn't just moral outrage. This is how do you do the real work. So, folks, pick up Disarming the Nuclear Argument, and you'll benefit, and the world will benefit from your knowledge. We're not going to go through all of the 20 arguments here. We just don't have the time. But I do want to explore some of the background, again, that got you to support this. Now, this is, you've invested your life in this kind of work, not just nuclear, but you've worked with nonviolent peace force, peace brigades, international, national peace council, international alert. You were man, program manager for Quakers in Britain, and you were founder and director of Peace Workers UK. That's a lot of investment that you've made in this work. So why? Wasn't there something better? Couldn't you just, wouldn't you prefer to stay home, watch something on the telly? I mean, wouldn't there have been something more enjoyable to do with your life? Why have you dedicated in this direction? In which work specifically called you? I mean, you, you know, you could have been a nurse and been helping people too, right? Well, firstly, it's not that I don't enjoy the work because it's, it's, it is uh, fulfilling and enjoyable and fun even to be involved in any kind of social change and making the world, you know, trying to make the world a better place. So, you know, I don't feel like I've lost out, but I got into it through a number of different channels, including my Quaker background and, you know, being forced into confronting these issues as a conscientious objector at the, at the very end of the Vietnam War. But when it comes to you, you know, the question of you being the one going and killing people or being killed, you know, it, it brings it home in a very direct way. So I, I had that experience of wrestling with that and trying to make a decision. And I've wanted to try to do things that, that would make a difference, you know, not just not just protesting and not just out on the streets, you know, as we were doing when I, you know, when I was a student, it was just what everybody did, you know, but I really wanted to find ways of contributing and really making a difference. And it's just, it's a frustration to me that there aren't more people out there doing this because it is fulfilling and it is exciting work. I've worked in war zones, you know, you don't have to be a soldier to see the world and to actually help people in, in really, really desperate situations. There's much, much more fulfilling and, and valuable things to do. And, and that's what I've sort of set myself to try to explore and find those. And while I would like to be doing other things than campaigning to get rid of nuclear weapons, you know, it's kind of, there are more fun things to do. But, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I, at this point, I feel like as Jonathan Shell, who wrote one of the seminal books about nuclear weapons back in the 80s, you know, he said, nuclear weapons are the unfinished business of the 20th century. You know, we've got to... We've got to get this done. And I feel like the people in my generation, you know, this is the last thing we can do. I'm getting older and I, you know, there are lots of other things I'd like to be doing, but, you know, I cannot let this book just go by and see another whole generation of people trying to struggle with this issue when we've got all the information. We already know what needs to be done. We know how to do it and we just got to do it. So one of the things that makes this work exciting at the moment is this new treaty because it is something positive, it's something really productive, it's something we can really sink our teeth into and really work with. 
And it's also very exciting to me that it's all young people all around the world, you know, in all these surprising countries like Nigeria and Colombia and all these places where they've got young people activated and really working on this issue. And so being part of that family of global citizens working together to try to change the world in a really positive way, it is very exciting. You know, when you've got a basket full of eggs, you know, the U.S., I think, at one point was so heavily involved, its basket of eggs included nuclear weapons. When you remove one of the tools, one of the supplies that you've depended upon, I think that people feel a loss, like, aren't we vulnerable? You worked certainly with nonviolent peace force, peace brigades, all of these kind of groups. I think that represents other kinds of weapons for resolving problems that are relatively little well examined by our society. Do you have a sense of what we need to put in our quiver since we're taking out these other arrows? I'm, I'm working with mixed metaphors here, eggs and baskets and quivers and so on. But do you know what I mean? What do we need to do to replace our comfort that at least we can blow everything up? Well, that's an interesting question. What else can we use to blow everything up? No, uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't want to blow them up. If we were depending on that so much, what can, we, what, what can give us assurance that we can actually deal with conflict? Well, you know, there are so many tools out there for dealing with conflict. You know, the saying that, you know, if, if all you have in your toolbox is a hammer, everything's going to look like a nail. And that's really what we've come to in terms of the investment into military solutions for everything. You know, nuclear weapons are just the tip of the, the iceberg there when it comes to thinking that, you know, we're safer and we're, we're going to make the world better by somehow putting all our effort and all our resources into military might. It's just not the case. You know, we, we don't solve any problems with military. We only create more problems. And you mentioned Nonviolent Peace Force and other organizations that I've worked with who are trying to find unarmed ways of addressing even the most difficult situations. So, you know, mediation and conflict resolution tools that we already we've been using for decades, we know that those can solve problems. We know that they can resolve conflicts and they're doing so every day. You know, people don't, don't hear about these things because, you know, the, what makes the news is all the bombs going off and so on. But every single day there are conflicts, international ones as well as domestic ones and local ones and, you know, family ones that get resolved peacefully without anybody getting hurt using tools that are well established. But when it comes to some of the more intractable issues like, you know, how do you deal with genocide? How do you deal with mass atrocities? How do you deal with countries that are really hell-bent on attacking other countries or whatever? Then you need some of these newer tools and uh, unarmed civilian peacekeeping is one of them. It's been tried in a number of different countries and adapted and developed and it's well-tested tool that we now have to send unarmed civilians instead of military to keep parties apart and protect civilians and convince people that they can find other ways of handling their conflicts. But there are many others, and there are others to still to be discovered. We won't discover them unless we stop putting all our eggs in the basket of military and nuclear weapons and all that kind of thing. We've got to put our real best minds and our best thinking and our best resources into these alternatives, and we'll find them. Have you personally, Tim, been in areas where genocide was going on, that kind of violence? I mean, I'm, I'm wondering, to some degree, I feel safer. I was in the Peace Corps, for instance. There wasn't genocide going on where I was at. But I did visit Rwanda. I did visit the eastern part of Congo, where there's been tremendous genocide. I felt close to some of those cases, but 
I never was around where people were shooting. Have you been to those areas? Do you have some sense that this works because you've lived it? Yeah, I've, I've been part of it. I've been in a number of places, including Chechnya, which was the worst, which was a lot of these situations have not been resolved yet, you know, even today, satisfactorily. But I've seen the tools that we have developed and are using. I've seen them and, and used them myself. So I, I know, for instance, in Sri Lanka, in Philippines, in South Sudan, where I've worked quite extensively, I've been in these situations and worked with military commanders and soldiers on the ground on, on both sides of a conflict and seen for myself how building relationships with them working with them to try to find ways that they can save face or they can still work towards their objectives and at the same time do it with less violence and especially less violence towards civilians. I've seen that work. You know, I know it works. And so we need to just you know, work on a lot more of that. And folks, this isn't my first interview with someone involved with Nonviolent Peace Force. Just come to NordenSpiritRadio.org, do a search for Nonviolent Peace Force, and you'll find some more information. And we'll, we'll continue with that soon. There is one kind of a side detour that I want to follow with you. Religiously, spiritually, you said you grew up, your mother was Quaker, you were raised Quaker, and you went by some other byways along the way, including, you said, kind of fundamentalist Christian, Presbyterian, uh, eventually you, you, and such along the way. At any point in those wanderings, did your dedication to peace, your orientation towards this kind of work, either flourish or flag? Uh, well, I've, I've gone through some difficult patches, you know, personally and professionally, and they tend to coincide. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I do do this work from a very deep conviction that it's the right thing to be doing. And I've carried that with me all, all the time. But, you know, there have been times when I've doubted that that's really the right thing and it's not working. And, you know, what am I doing here? And, and, uh, you know, those have tended to coincide with times when I, you know, I'm, generally lost in the world and not knowing where I'm going. <laughs> but I come back, you know, and I'm grateful for that. One of my convictions, and it may or may not be accurate, but it's my conviction, is that this kind of work is tremendously important to have community behind you in order to support it, to be a lone person tilting at windmills, to use another metaphor that's probably inappropriate here. To be a person lone tilting at windmills, you're not going to win against the windmills. Has there been time where you felt like community waned in terms of support for you in your work and that when it's waxed, where you've been more strengthened? Sure. I mean, as I said, those times when it's been most difficult are when I haven't, I haven't felt that, that you know, community behind me. And, you know, just, just now, for instance, uh, working on this, you know, so I've, I've had to leave my job in London to look after my mother and I'm on my own at the moment. And so it's a challenging time to be thinking, how am I going to do this, you know, carry on with this work? But I've gone to my local Quaker meeting in Massachusetts, in Northampton, Massachusetts. They've supported me, you know, as a concern. Um, they've set up a committee that's going to help me find ways of supporting me in the community. We're working with a larger Quaker community on that. So that feels like a way of getting support, you know, and being part of a community. Uh, certainly when I was working for Quakers in London, I had a massive community behind me. It was you know, very empowering to feel that I had that support. And I think it is important, as you say, you know, to have to, to be part of a community. We can't do this on our own. No, no, nobody can. 
Well, I'm glad you are doing the work. Again, folks, we're speaking with Timon Wallace, Timon Milne Wallace, full name, and you can find the link on nordenspiritradio.org or you can go to his website, disarmingarguments.com. His recent book is Disarming the Nuclear Argument. There's stuff you're going to learn in here that you really want to know because it will enable us to make a better future. Subtitled The Truth About Nuclear Weapons. Tim spoke recently in Eau Claire, and I was privileged to hear him then. The word needs to get out. ICANN got the Nobel Peace Prize just recently, and that's so important in terms of raising up the visibility of this argument. Tim's doing his part with his book. Together, we can make a big change in the world. And Tim, I'm so grateful that you've put your life to this work and that you chose to bring it here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you. Again, you can go to disarmingarguments.com for more info about Tim Wallace and his book. And there are a couple other links related to Tim on my site, northernspiritradio.org, including to boldsongs.com, where you'll get to know a number of songs of peace, justice, and spirit by Tim. And I thought it would be fun and inspirational to go out with one of them. The song I picked is Bombs into Bread, and it touches on exactly what we've been talking about with Tim and Milne Wallace today. Here is Tim's song, Bombs into Bread, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. Some say it's impossible for the world to change. They say there's no stopping a nuclear exchange. Well, I'm not prepared to give up for dead. I'd rather turn bombs into bread. We can turn swords into plowshares. Spears into pruning hooks. We can turn nations into peaceful neighbors. Leaving war to the history books. We can turn tanks into tractors. Warships into hospital beds Hangers into schools for the children And bombs into bread May take a miracle to turn things around But miracles are not so uncommonly found And if they can make bombs while the world's underfed Well, we'll just have to make bread instead We can turn swords into plowshares Spears into pruning hooks We can turn nations into peaceful neighbours Leaving war to the history books Miracles can happen cause love is the power They can happen here, they can happen this hour So here's the message to be spread That we can turn bombs into bread We can turn swords into plowshares Spears into pruning hooks We can turn nations into peaceful neighbours Leaving war to the history books We can turn tanks into tractors Warships into hospital beds Hangers into schools for the children And bombs into bread And bombs into bread The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, 
northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.